Good morning. It's good to be with you here again. I want to start by asking you a question that I hope is going to orient our time together. You, in the event of holy listening for God's word in the sermon and me as I both proclaim but then also listen. And the question is this, why are you here? I don't mean what else could you be doing like getting the the pit started and ready for the Super Bowl tonight or something, which I or this afternoon, which I expect you're going to be doing. But I mean, why in the sense of what is your motive for being here? What is the the burr under your saddle, as we say in Texas, that is compelling you to to come and gather and be identified with God's people in a service of worship? Because in one sense, at least sociologically speaking, you're you're oddballs for doing that, at least in the Northwest. Not a lot of people go to church, and so there has to be something that is compelling you. And I want you to think about why it is that you are here. In addition to that, I want you to think about this, this question, this cluster of questions as well. Um, as a people who identify with God, who come to such unique events as gathered worship on Sunday morning, And then even beyond that, as you gather together in your homes or even as you represent Christ in your workplace or in school, what does our life together say about God to the world? In other words, we're we're saying something about who is this God that we worship by the way that we order our lives, by the way that we interact with one another, by the way that we interact in the world. What kind of God are we proclaiming? in those actions, and even to one another. What should we be giving to the world? What should we be receiving from one another? I want to suggest, even beyond suggest to you this morning, I want to proclaim that there is an answer. What is your motive? What is the mojo, if I can use that word, for Christianity? What is it that should be compelling you? What is it that we should be saying about who this God is, who we have just sung about in these wonderful hymns. And it is love, full stop, period. What should compel us, what should drive us, what should orient our actions with one another in the world, what brings us to worship, who it is that we believe this God is, can be summed up, not reductively, but fully, in the word love. And so we're going to key off of that and look at this passage, which is a famous passage, one of the more well-known passages. Maybe you've seen it in Needlepoint in your grandmother's house, and that's awesome if it's there. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read that and then pray, and then we're going to proceed to hear from the Lord the rest of our time together. If... I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, have not love, I gain nothing. Love 
is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing sense of humor that you have that you would call me minister, though I am, to come speak on love, something in which uh, even in middle age, I, I feel like I'm a novice. And so yet because you have loved me and I stand up here, not because I have earned the right, but because I've been gifted with this privilege, I speak your words, I speak them to my brothers and sisters and friends gathered here, but also to myself. And we do ask that this most basic, key, core explanation of who you are and what you're doing in the world would be something that would grip our hearts, our imaginations, our minds, our hands, so that we would be the kind of people who would be called loving and that that would be the kind of God that we evidence to the world. In fact, it's because that's the God we know as one who is love. Help us to better understand and live out love in response to hearing your voice this morning in the sermon and in Holy Scripture. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Okay, I don't usually do this. Maybe I do, but um, I have three points. And they all start with the letter F. Uh, and that's probably more to help me not forget what I'm doing and move along. But hopefully it'll be a useful device for you as well as we're thinking about what is love. And so here's the first point. Love is fundamental. Love in the Christian religion and in our understanding of what it is to know God and who God is. Love is fundamental. And that's what we get here from this passage. All right, so who is the author of this passage, 1 Corinthians 13? It is the Apostle Paul. And Paul is writing a letter to a congregation that is messed up. It is a congregation that is just kind of riven and torn and divided with fights and and, 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 and moral decay and just people taking sides. And just as a quick aside, another sermon for another time, you know this, the church is always a problem. 
It's not the problem, but the church is always a problem. And it kind of makes sense because it's a, a hospital. It is a place for healing. It is a place where people who are messed up and even recognize they're messed up are coming. So we shouldn't be surprised if we see the church being uh, problematic. It doesn't mean that we want to just rest and say that's okay. But this is a recogniz- uh, it is recognized uh, by Paul and the other authors of Scripture. The church is a problem. And there's lots of problems here in the Corinthian church. And so in chapter 13, and you can read the first 12 chapters where Paul is just kind of unfolding what all is going on. And he gets to chapter 13, and it's almost as if he's like, oh, okay, look, we just need to kind of recenter. We need to uh, just take a breath, and we need to get anchored here in how we're going to sort out all the difficulties uh, in the church in your life and in your relationship with God. And so in the first three verses, he just kind of lays it out. He says, this is what's going to be most fundamental in healing and in true and vital worship. If you don't have love, you ain't got nothing. If you don't have love at the core of your worship and your service and your inner relations, then you have zilch zero nada there is nothing that accrues to you as a result of all the good things now why would paul say that because that is a pretty drastic statement you have nothing if at the heart of who you are and what you do you don't have love why does paul say this well let's think for a little bit about who the apostle paul is First, we know this, that Paul is a faithful Jew. It means that he has a bedrock commitment to the scriptures of particularly the Old Testament, the Torah and the Psalms. Okay, and Paul is also, as an apostle, a witness to Jesus Christ. He knows that God is doing something particular and unique in Jesus. And so because of both of these things, Paul says that love is the basic element of existence because of the Bible, because the God of uh, who is revealed, particularly in the Torah and the Psalms, is a God who is motivated by love. And then also because Jesus, what embodies in which kind of what kind of fleshes out his ministry, why he does what he does is love. So for the one who worships the God of the Hebrew Bible, the answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing can be given, and frankly, it's an answer for anyone who would want to listen and think about that. Why is there something rather than nothing? Paul would start with this one word answer, love. Love is the reason why there is something instead of nothing. Because in Paul's understanding, and it's not just in his imagination or something he made up, he understands that Paul, or I'm sorry, that God created the world in love. There's this wonderful commentator on this. This is a Russian Orthodox guy named Vladimir Lowski, which is not important, but I just kind of wanted to give a name check there. When he's commenting on the creation narratives, he says, look, what we know about God is he's Trinity. And we just sang this wonderful hymn about this before I came up. So God existed content, fulfilled, satisfied. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were communicating love to one another. There was no lack. There was no deprivation. There was no loneliness. They didn't need cable or anything like that, right? But this love that they expressed among themselves was so great, it was like this overflow, like the psalm that we that was read earlier in our scripture reading. It's like this, this cup of God's love was just overflowing, but it wasn't in the presence of enemies. It was in the presence of themselves. And out of a result of this overflow of love, God created something that wasn't God to share this love. 
And so he made the universe. He made the world. He wanted to, dis- to direct and express this love outside of himself. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's just because you're, you're reading weird Russian Orthodox people that you kind of come up with this idea. But that, that's actually not true because if you go to places like John 17, which is like this pulling behind the curtain of this, this uh, dialogue that God has with himself, the Father, when, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says um, a couple of different times through this long prayer, and it's, you remember that's the prayer that he prays right before he, he's going to be uh, executed the next day. He talks about, I am in them, and you are in me, and you have loved them even as you have loved me, that there's a sense in which this, this love has swept up people who are not God into this divine love. That love is fundamental about Jesus' mission and his work. That this surplus, this excess, this treasure of love by which God made the world is now a love, mysterious and powerful, into which you and I are being pulled into as well. So what's he saying? That What's Paul saying as he's kind of both preaching to, comforting, and scolding these Christians. He's saying love is sewn into the very fabric of reality. That is, it is basic that God's purpose of creating and revealing in the world is compelled and motivated and displays his love. And love is most is shown most fundamentally how? Well, in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But I want you to hear this point. That you, as a Christian... If you're a Christian here this morning, are a part of a greater purpose. That the narrative, that the story into which your life fits, even if you don't even see that there is a narrative or a story that has a beginning, middle, and end, any kind of direction or purpose, it does. You are swept up and pulled into and, and written into, if I can put it that way, a story of God's purposes and, and God's love. But even if you're not a Christian here this morning, and and if you're not, we're glad that you're here. We want you to know that this is a place where you can come and and, and experience what Christians do and ask questions. But I want you to know that if you're not a Christian, that you are one who is also being called and even being drawn to this one, to this love. And I want you to think about it this way, that all of the loves that you have, all of the affections, all the joys that you might taste and experience in this life, all the beauty, all of the things that have this sense of transcendence that you can't quite explain, those are evidences themselves of a greater purpose, of a greater love, a greater lover who Christians call God. Those are gifts which you experience as a result of God's giving them to you. And they are meant not just for you to kind of camp out there, but to point you to someone greater. There was a a, a theologian that I read earlier um, a couple of weeks ago, and she's talking about how her father worshipped on the golf course. Now, she didn't mean that he literally worshipped on a golf course. She just meant that when he played golf, there was a sense of joy and something more to the game that he experienced while playing the game that lifted him up. Now, her longing was for him to know why that was there, but it was meant to point him to the one who gives that joy, that love. God. All right. So the first point, remember, are three F's. Love is fundamental. Well, let's talk about the second one here, moving on, looking at verses four and seven. Now, there's a novel, maybe some of you read it in high school, maybe in college, Brothers Karamazov. I won't bore you with the long arc of it, but there's this interesting character in it called Father Zosima. 
And Father Zosima has this one line, uh, and it's very poignant. He says this. He says, hell is the inability to love other people. Think about that. Just think about the, the kind of experience that communicates, the kind of locked-inness of this inability to kind of share and to give and to receive this joy and affection that he's talking about. That's a, it's a pretty fair, I think, uh, expression of what that experience would be like. But I want to also add to that that it can also be making things hellish for others, even if you don't mean to, by not, by only rather, feeling love and not showing it. You get it? That you can kind of make things rough for other people by saying, I really love you, but then there's no way in which it's tangibly, concretely given to them. So here's the second one. If love is fundamental, verses 4 to 7 teaches it teach us that love has form, okay, that there's a shape and structure. Now, look how Paul begins describing the form of love, and he starts in verse 4. And we're not going to go through all these. I really just want to camp out on one thing. He says that love is patient. Love is patience. Now, how would you and I describe love if we were tasked to kind of rewrite this or take some of the themes from 1 Corinthians? How would you and I do that? I I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but probably my gut response would be something like love is passion. Love is passionate, right? It is something that is tense, immediate. It's something that you feel. It is, it is free. It's just kind of, you know, overwhelming. It's like that love, that, that cup being filled. And there's a sense in which that is definitely part of it. But there's something that is very now focused and even kind of ephemeral, right? Just like a, a fog that burns away about that description of, of, of passion. Instead, Paul because he's Paul and writing under the, 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 the direction of the Spirit, says that love, and the way he wants us to think about love, having form, is that it is patient. And that's kind of interesting because that means that love has to have a kind of other-centeredness. It isn't just about what you experience and feel. It, it is, there's a faith entailed that you are responding, you are waiting on someone else. Uh, so it entails some of these other things. Now, Paul writes about patience in other places, too, and we're going to actually move to what this looks like thinking as a community who lives in Hillsboro, what that looks like looking out. But Paul says this in Romans chapter 2. He says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, when we talk about patience, we're talking about something that is godlike, that, that, that is godly, that is something that God does, right? That he experiences or he somehow, and I know that we're having to think, you know, strangely because God is unique, but that, that God himself is patient. And so when he calls us to be patient and to have our love be formed by a kind of patience, he's not he, asking us to do something that he hasn't done. And there's also a sense in which that patience bears fruit, bears gospel fruit. And so I think that's why it's important for us to think about patience and love and the, the form of love being patience in terms of our own mission and our own presence as Christians in our culture. And by culture, just think about your neighborhood or your schools or where it is you work. 
Now, there's a, a, a guy I like to read in the New York Times. I, I can't even remember what days he normally publishes. There's a guy named David Brooks. He is an observant Jew. He's not a Christian, but he spends a lot of time with Christians. And um, I think at the end of last fall, he gave an address to a group of people who were predominantly Christians, maybe associated with the, the magazine First Things. And he was just talking, and he, he said, I want to be considered a, a holy friend, right? I'm not, I'm not here to just kind of toss gasoline and throw a match on it and run away, but I want to give you some critiques. And he's talking about how his observation of Christians in our culture is there is this kind of, this paradox that there's this wall of condescension that Christians will offer to others. That, and it's this mix. On the one hand, that he says there's this unique psychology, uh, this weird mixture in Christian culture and Christian churches and small groups and things like that, where there's this mix of, on the one hand, intellectual inferiority. Oh, we didn't go to Harvard or Yale, so we don't, you know, we need to read these people and we want to catch up and we want to show that we're really smart. But then, interestingly enough, there's this inferiority complex intellectually, but a superiority complex spiritually. I know Jesus and I'm better than you. And so he said it just kind of makes for this, he didn't say yucky, but I'm saying yucky, just kind of bad, off-putting vibe. And let me give you a quote. I know sometimes in a sermon you risk just losing everyone when you give a long quote, but uh, you bear with me, we'll bear with one another. All right. There is sometimes a belief among some people that those who have been with Christ a long time can adopt a paternal attitude toward those who have not been with Christ or have come to Christ recently. Now, remember, this is, this is uh, David Brooks, who's not a Christian, but he's making some very salient observations. He says, and this is a caring condescension. It's Christians wanting to help, but it's also a form of pride to know the route God has chosen for each of us. Pause. Isn't it true that all of us have sometimes very interesting different routes by which God has just kind of not just in a straight line, but zigzagged us into the kingdom, right? All right. Pressing play again. It's a form of closed-mindedness. It's off-putting. People who have come to Christ recently may not have lived in the church for very long, but they have lived and read and thought, and they haven't come from, back from these experiences with empty hands, and they have as much to teach as to learn. Boom. That's powerful observation about really what is kind of true about us as Christians. And so I want to uh, ask you this. Do people see you? Do people see ascension? Do they see you as an individual? Show the patience. The non-condescending, non-looking down at your nose because you've known Christ since you were baptized kind of approach where you listen and not just hear the words that they're saying so that you can wait till they pause and then jump in with something, but a a genuine, a holy, a patient, a godly listening, bearing their burdens, understanding where they're coming from, the genuine care. Now, I want to give you an example. It's one of the campus ministers who I get have the privilege of uh, pastoring. It's a guy at... um, at Stanford University in Palo Alto in Northern California in the Bay Area. His name is Britton. So if I say Britton, know that I'm talking about the campus minister, not uh, the place where they do tea. Um, Britton's a campus minister at Stanford. He's been there about five years. And Britton is a sharp guy, good looking, but he's very personable. 
He loves students. The group at Stanford is, is you know, it's probably about the size of this congregation. And um, it's not the biggest Christian group on campus, but he just knows a ton of people at Stanford. And one of the reasons he does is because he spends a lot of time talking with kids. He just gets to know them. He does intramurals. They do tailgate parties, they grill at their house. It doesn't matter. He just has a big net. He wants to sweep you in. And so he has a lot of friends, a lot of students who are not involved in RUF in any way. They just know him because he's listened. And he'll say, hey, how's it going? What, what classes are you taking this semester? Um, how are things going with your girlfriend? You know, at Stanford, how's that startup business that you're doing, right? So there, there are all kinds of things going on. And these are, are, are students who are not Christians. And he's just been warm and affable. Well, he was at a tailgate party one time, and this girl who he had never met came up to him and said, are you Britain? And he said, yeah. He's like, I heard you preach. And he was thinking, no, you haven't, because my group, I know everyone who comes through, and I haven't seen you sitting in our meeting whenever I preach on campus. And she said, well, let me tell you, I heard you preach on campus because I'm in a class on human sexuality. And there's about 60, 75 people in the class. Everyone in the class is an agnostic or an atheist, including me. Um, But you know some people in that class. And as we were going along and, and talking about different views on sexuality and dating and relationships, the professor said, we need someone who will represent the traditional point of view. And none of us believe in the traditional point of view, but some of us knew who you were, at least some kids in the class knew who you were. So we played a couple of your sermons on marriage, sex, and dating in class. Now, some of the people thought, this is why Christianity is going down the tubes. This is archaic. It's rotten. Some people said, well, this is weird, but there's something that resonates. And she was one of them. But you see, the point is that he had just kind of built a bridge and in ways that he didn't expect or try and self-determine, there was actually the fruit that came from his patience and the love that he extended out because he had first been shown love. I don't want you to take away from this. If you just act like Britain, then you're going to see marvelous things happen. Who knows? He didn't know that was going to happen. He just thought he was doing what he was supposed to do. But I do, and all of us should believe, because we are proof and evidence of this, that love, the love of God, bears fruit. We are the the fruit of the love of God that that, that we have received through other people. And very often, we are the hands and the feet through which God will extend the same. And just a quick little aside. It's another sermon for another time. Just talking about... Patience, of course, we want to show patience with those who are, who are not Christians. We want to love and affirm them because they are made in the image of God. They have full dignity. Their lives matter. But I almost shouldn't have to say it, but we're in the book of Corinthians, and he, Paul had to say it. We need to show patience with other Christians, too. All right? We can too easily write off other individuals or groups be, and get gossipy about them because maybe their theological accent, the way they talk about things, is maybe a bit different than ours. They're too conservative or they're too progressive or whatever camp that you want to throw rocks at and not take into account that Jesus himself is actually the one who is responsible for them and has invested his life and his care for them. That's all I'm going to say about that. But, so, what do we heard so far. We're moving toward the end. Love is fundamental. Love has form. And then starting in verse 8, our last point, um, and I hope you see that what we're talking about is actually anchored in God's word. Love is forever. What does Paul say? 
Love never fails. How is it? Is this just some audacious kind of over-the-top, you know, preachers will say something way over-top up here so they can just get you to right there? Is this just Paul doing that kind of thing? Love never fails. How is it that he could say something uh, so extreme as love will never end? Like, I do weddings. I'm sure Eric does weddings somewhat regularly. And there's a point, at least in the services I do, where you have this beautiful man and woman standing in front of you. They're young. They're about to embark on their life together. And it's a, it's a party. Very often there's music and beer and all these good things. But right in the middle of the service, you're, you're talking about the love they had, how God brought them together. And then you say, until death do you part. And it's kind of like, you can hear the record scratch because you're thinking, Wow. We're about to start things off. And then we bring this crotchety Presbyterian minister talking about death and the end of this thing right before it even begins. So in one sense, yes, we could say there is a terminal point to our loving, faithful and formed as that loving might be. But even the love that would be expressed between a husband and wife points to something greater. And Scripture teaches that love itself is not just this concept. It's not just feeling. Love the end of the day, is a person. It is fully embodied in a person. First John teaches that God is love, right? So we're not being reductionistic to talk about love uh, and, and identifying God with love. But in particular, Jesus Christ is the fullest embodiment of God's love. For example, what's the most famous Bible verse? It used to be the most famous Bible verse in America. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave, right, there's this giving aspect, his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Jesus expresses what love is when it's talking about the movement from God to humankind. And love, therefore, lasts because Jesus lasts. Jesus abides. Hebrews says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are able to love because Christ first and even continues to love us. And what's the good news about that? Not only does it last, but Jesus' love is fully formed, right? He has shown his patience. For example, in Philippians 2, which we, we celebrated not too long ago, that he humbled himself by becoming human. That he came in the flesh to meet us where we are. To communicate in concrete, tactile, with fingerprints and eyebrows kind of way. God's love, his presence, his activity, his rescuing activity for us. That he might redeem us and deliver us from our sin. And that's the other thing. When, when God loves us, he's not coming to people who are already kind of cool with who he was. We were not. Romans 5 teaches the exact opposite. He came to those who were by nature not his friends, not even his distant acquaintances, third cousins. We were his enemies. We didn't love him. We had no natural aptitude or desire to love God. And so by all rights, he didn't really have to show us anything. But instead, those, were his, those who were his enemies, he comes to love. And he shows that love by his life, by his death and his resurrection and by the gift of faith, which enables us to, to wake up, to see, to have a new capacity to love and engage him. And as a result, he makes us brothers and sisters of Christ. And because he loves us, he doesn't leave us where we are. But according to Hebrews 7, he lives to pray for us. 
Have you thought about that? That Jesus is doing something now. He's not just in the green room waiting for everything to kind of shake out in a thousand years. He is actively praying for us so that we would be like him in our, in our unique ways, right? He's made us as individuals, but to be like him. He sent his Holy Spirit to recreate, to renew us after his image, an image, an image of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And his committed love will complete us on the last day at our resurrection. This life is not the end. It's a part of a larger picture in which we participate. So let me ask you, I'm going to close with this. I'm just going to ask you the question I asked at the beginning. It's the one that I hope the Lord is using to impress on your hearts as an individual and as a community. Why are you here? What compels you? And what do people here in Hillsboro believe about God? Who do they think this God is as a result of your witness in interacting with one another and in the world? Would love be the first thing they think? By God's grace, it can be so. According to God's will, it can be so. Let's pray that it would be so. Please join me. Father in heaven, you who are unbounded in your love for us, to the extent that you have even bound yourself in flesh, in our experiences, human, you have crossed the divide of our rebellion our indifference, our ignorance, and made us alive because you loved us. Not because you needed us, but because you have chosen not to live without us. And with that in mind and with that in our hearts, we pray that we would have and live out, even if in inches, not in miles, that same kind of love with one another our fellow Christians, and with the world. Help us, we pray. Amen.